Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kustla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center. What you're about to hear is a talk I gave yesterday at True Yoga in Thousand Oaks, California, and it was on mindfulness meditation according to the Eightfold Path. Hope you find it interesting. Hope you find it useful. So without further introduction, my talk on mindfulness meditation at True Yoga in Thousand Oaks, California. So today I'd like to talk about mindfulness meditation. I was just at Northwoods High School in Irvine, uh, Monday and Tuesday of this week, uh, speaking to uh, comparative religion classes out there. And I'll be going back in May to speak... Uh, about Stop the Hate Day. So it'll be unity and diversity and coming to a place of acceptance with how things are. But they were studying uh, about mindfulness, and one of the, their uh, homework assignments was to be mindful for a day. Now, it doesn't sound like maybe such a big deal, but, you know, I, I was just at uh, Santa Monica Promenade the other day having lunch, and I always like to get um, Snapple. And when you take off the cap, there's always an interesting bit of uh, information underneath the cap. And this cap said the attention span of a goldfish is three seconds. And I'm going, wow, how could they be mindful? I mean, they're, they're, they're limited to three seconds of mindfulness. And then something else happens. And I thought, what a great uh, gift it is to be born as a human being. That we really have the ability, if we so choose, to be mindful for a whole day. And maybe even longer. But what is mindfulness? And, and what is the purpose of mindfulness? Well, some people think the purpose of mindfulness is simply to be in the present moment. And of course, that is part of it. But I like to refer to the Eightfold Path. Because the Eightfold Path has three path factors that deal with meditation. And in Buddhism, they have two forms of meditation. They have samatha meditation, which is tranquility, which is what I talk about most of the time. And they have mindfulness meditation, which is vipassana. And this is the technique that the historical Buddha rediscovered. He found that the techniques prevalent in India at the time of his life didn't lead to permanent permanent nirvana or enlightenment, temporary. And when the conditions changed, when he left the forest or left the ashram, everything turned out to be exactly the same as it was before. So he wanted to find something that would permanently change him, cut out the fetters and defilements at the roots so they couldn't grow back. And that's when he rediscovered insight meditation or mindfulness meditation. And I like the word rediscovered because it implies, rightly so, that he was not the first Buddha, that he, according to Theravada tradition of Sri Lanka, was the 28th Buddha. So, what is mindfulness and what does the Eightfold Path say about it? Well, the Eightfold Path says there is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So concentration would be samatha, or tranquility, Mindfulness would be vipassana, or insight. And then we have right effort. 
Now, right effort may sound like uh, going to true yoga and doing yoga, or going to Gold's Gym and doing weights, but actually right effort is all about the mind, and it goes like this. To prevent unskillful thoughts from arising, to abandon unskillful thoughts once they have arisen, to develop skillful thoughts that have not yet arisen, and to maintain skillful thoughts that are already there. So we need to figure out what is a skillful thought and what is an unskillful thought. Well, an unskillful thought is one based in lust. A skillful thought is one that's based in love. An unskillful thought would be one that's based in greed. And a skillful thought would be one that's based in generosity. An unskillful thought would be one that's based in hatred and anger. A skillful thought would be one that's based in loving kindness and compassion. An unskillful thought would be one that's rooted in delusion and ignorance. A skillful thought would be one that's rooted in wisdom. So we have skillful, love, generosity, compassion, and wisdom. We have unskillful, lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, when I look at the world today, and when I see the newscast, I see a lot of unskillful activity. Not necessarily evil, according to Buddhism, because in Buddhism we really don't have evil, because we don't have an ultimate good as well. And we lack a divine lawgiver that would define for us what is evil and what is good, or what is evil and what is righteous. So we have karma. We have unskillful karma, and we have skillful karma. And our reference point would be more suffering, or less suffering. And that's how we determine if we were skillful or unskillful, not relying on the divine lawgiver to interpret it for us. So what is this mindfulness? And how do you do it? And what are, what's the final outcome? Well, there actually turns out to be four kinds of mindfulness meditation. Mindfulness of the body, Mindfulness of sensations, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of mental objects. So the one I like to talk about is the one about sensations. That's the one that I've used, and that's the one that seems to allow us to achieve enlightenment or nirvana, because sensation is also part of the 12 link chain of causation. And in Pali, it's called Paticca Samuppada. What the 12 link chain of causation means is that we have 12 links, and those links always end up creating suffering. And if we can break one of the links, if we can break one of the links in the circle, then suffering will not arise. And one of those links is sensation. So how many sensations do we have? Well, the Buddha said we have three sensations. We have pleasant sensations, we have unpleasant sensations, and we have neutral sensations. Now, the way the mind works, it usually overlooks neutral sensations. It doesn't catch the mind's attention. So generally speaking, we're only aware of pleasant and unpleasant. So imagine sitting quietly on the floor, going into a posture of meditation, bringing your mind to the sensation of breath and focusing it there for a few moments, watching it go out 
and come in. Go out and come in. Then taking that same concentrated mind and starting at the top of your head and scanning all the way down to the tip of your toes, looking for any sensations, whether they be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Generally speaking, we're not going to find or see or become aware of the neutral, but we will become of the unpleasant immediately and perhaps the pleasant later on. So as we're sitting, we might say, oh, my knees hurt, my back doesn't feel very comfortable, my mind is agitated, all these sensations are rising. Now, our job is not to stay with any one of those sensations. Our job is simply to note that we have become aware of a sensation and we give it a value, pleasant or unpleasant. And then we continue our search for more sensations. And when we find one, we note pleasant, unpleasant, and then we continue. And we might do that for 15, 20, 25 minutes, just noting pleasant or unpleasant. Now, the idea, it seems, according to the Eightfold Path, is to then reflect or ruminate on those sensations and the experience of labeling them pleasant or unpleasant. By doing that, we want to see if we can uncover the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that will liberate us, that will make us free. Those three aspects of Buddhist wisdom are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Those are the liberating aspects of Buddhist wisdom. So we'd use the first one, impermanence, and we'd say to ourselves, all those sensations I became aware of, were any of them permanent and unchanging? Or did all of them seem to have a vibratory nature? And if we're honest and clear about the sensations we experienced, we might say that none of them seem to stay the same very long, that all of them seem to have a vibratory nature. Some of the sensations, if they were unpleasant, seemed to almost increase as we observe them. And other sensations that we were aware of seemed to almost go away. Couldn't find them any longer. But none of them seemed to exist in the same way very long. So with that insight, we could apply that to our life and look at all the relationships and activities and thoughts that go into making our life and say, did any of them last for any length of time? Or is everything in our life in a constant state of flux? Well, again, if we're honest with ourselves, we'd have to say nothing lasts very long. If it's pleasant, it doesn't last long enough. If it's unpleasant, it lasts far too long. So we have this idea that if only we could hold on to the good, or push away the bad, our life would be perfect. So we analyze, we investigate, we reflect, and come to the conclusion that yes, in fact, all things in life, our life in particular, seem to be in a constant state of flux and change. And that gives us a sense of insecurity at one level, a sense of fear, at another level, 
And now we go to the second aspect of Buddhist wisdom, and we say to ourselves, were all the sensations I became aware of ultimately unsatisfactory? And if you've been meditating for a while, you know that some of the sensations feel really good, that there's a certain bliss and pleasure and happiness that's associated with some of the sensations. So if we're honest with ourselves, we really couldn't say that every sensation we became aware of was unsatisfactory. Some felt pretty good right off the bat. But if we factor in impermanence and ask ourselves, did these pleasant sensations change? Were they permanent? Were they unconditional? We'd have to say, no, they weren't permanent. And if I based my happiness on those pleasant sensations, I was going to be disappointed eventually because they had to change and I didn't want them to. So ultimately, we'd have to say every sensation we became aware of was ultimately unsatisfactory because ultimately everything changes. So if we didn't have that change, we could find permanent happiness in this world. But because change is always there, we're always seeking it and never able to find it. So now we're starting to let go a little bit of how we want our life to be or how it's supposed to be, you know? And we start to see that there really isn't any place to stand. There really isn't any refuge in this world where we can be safe all the time. Because everything that makes us happy is impermanent. And not only that, so are we. I just happened to be watching the news, and they were interviewing Kenny Rogers of the first edition. That was my time. And he just got a new facelift, and he didn't like the way the eyes turned out. They were sort of owl-like, very big. And so he's going to go back under the knife because people were having a difficult time recognizing him from a distance. And he's 67 now, you know. And he just had far too many wrinkles. And I, I really felt sorry for the guy because the one way he makes a living is to look a certain way. And, and how impermanent are those looks that we have? And how permanent do those wrinkles seem sometimes? But they change as well. Usually more appear. So, wow. So to base your professional career on the way you look is asking for trouble. Because your looks are constantly changing. And even within the cycle of a week, we have good days and bad days. And our face looks happy and rested some days. And it looks stressed and tired other days. We go, wow. Even day to day, I change. And that's not even taking into account the mind and how quickly that changes from watching the newscast and being so disappointed in the world events to looking at friends and family and being so happy that you have those. And so we go from one extreme to the other. So everything's in a constant state of change. And if any of us try to find our happiness in this world, ultimately we will be disappointed. Finally, the hardest of all, did any of these sensations we became aware of in our meditation practice, did any of them seem to exist independently? Were any of them unconditional? 
Did any of them have their own unique and original essence? And perhaps, as we reflect on the sensations we became aware of, we could say that a lot of those very uncomfortable, unpleasant sensations arose because we were sitting in a, in a way that was not normal for us. We were sitting cross-legged on a hard floor. And if the room was cold or warm, uncomfortable or comfortable, eventually our body started to tell us that we needed to move. That if we didn't move, if we didn't uncross our legs, eventually the blood would stop, gangrene would sit in, and we'd be dead. So it seems that a lot of the sensations that arose during our meditation practice arose because of certain conditions. And now we take that insight, that understanding, and apply it to ourselves. And we say, am I unconditional? Do I exist independent of my environment? Do I exist because I have a certain quality or essence? Do I have a soul? Now, I really like using that word because in Buddhism we talk about not having a soul, but, you know, the Buddha never met a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim. So he wasn't talking about the kind of soul that Christians or people of the book think about. He was talking about the kind of soul that the Hindus or the Brahmins in India talked about. But in America, we seem to be more interested in self than soul, so we could say to ourselves, do we have a self? Is there something independent? Is there a dialogue, that internal dialogue? Does that just happen because it's there and unique and unconditional? Or does that dialogue happen because I have a mind and a body and sense doors? Well, one of my favorite books, and you're probably tired of me talking about this, but one of my favorite books, which is available on audiobook from audible.com, which can be downloaded into your iTunes and taken with you everywhere you go on your iPod, is called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Piercing. And one of the issues or questions in that book was, what is quality? And he was a teacher and he gave the assignment to his class to write a paper about quality. Where does quality exist? And you can take any object you want and write about the quality of that object. And when the assignment was due, no one passed. No one could find the quality of anything. Now that got me to thinking. This didn't happen in the book, but it did happen in my mind. Wouldn't it have been cool if they had taken their motorcycles, because Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance had something to do with motorcycles. The author had a Honda Superhawk 400, and his buddy had a BMW, and his buddy always felt the BMW had more quality because it was engineered by the Germans. And wouldn't it have been cool if they would have taken both of those motorcycles to a Walmart parking lot, taken them apart into their 10,000 pieces, given them both a magnifying glass, 
and said to them, please find me the quality of your motorcycle. In which, in which part or piece does it exist? And now I imagine them taking a rather large magnifying glass and just searching piece after piece, part after part, looking for the quality of their motorcycle. And after it was all done, they came back and said, I can't find the quality of the BMW in any of the pieces. I can't find the quality of the Honda in any of the parts. What seems to happen when the many become one? Quality arises. Self arises. Soul arises. So we have this ability to look at many and see one. How easy does that make our life and our conversation? Instead of having to name the 10,000 pieces of Honda, we can simply say Honda, and in each one of our heads, a little picture of a motorcycle arises. Now, in some cases, it may not even be a Honda because you're not sure what Honda makes now. So you might have a little Triumph motorcycle picture arising in your head, but it's close enough to being a Honda. It works in conversation. You have an understanding of what the other person is talking about. But when you take those, that one and make it into many, then we can't find the quality any longer. And I was thinking, did any of the sensations I experienced have an independent quality, all their own. And it turns out, no, of course, they were all conditional. And then did I have a quality that was all my own, unique, onto myself? Sometimes it seems that way, but actually it's conditional as well. So I was thinking to myself, well, what conditions do I need? Well, just to start off, I need to be able to breathe. And so if you take my air away from me for five or six minutes, I'm dead. And I was just thinking the other day, I've been around on this earth a long time and never been without air for five or six minutes. I'm still here. How remarkable is that? Wow. Now, if you take my water away from me for six or seven days, I'm a goner. Wow. So in my whole life as a human being, I've never been without water for five or six days. Then we have food, we have medicine, we have shelter, we have clothing. So somehow, I've been able to keep those conditions close enough to me to allow me to survive. It's an amazing when you think about your life and how many times it could go this way or that way. And somehow, self arises and says, well, we need to have more food, or we need to have more water, or we need to have better air. So we move to Colorado. <laughs> so we are conditional. There is no one there. And if there is no one there, and somebody insults us, who is it that gets angry? Who is it that needs to defend themselves? You know, and when I see um, political leaders, I'm saying to myself now, who are they really? I know who they think they are, 
But aren't they just 10,000 pieces being put together by self? And I'm creating one. But if I start to take them apart, what part of them don't I like? Is it their hair? Or their sinews? Or their muscles? Or their bones? Or their teeth? Or their fingernails? What part of them don't I like? Excuse me? I... Yes, well, <laughs> I forgot about that part. <laughs> so it, it really, in, in a very real way, understanding and making those three aspects of Buddhist wisdom come alive in our practice, it really allows us to not be quite as attached to the world around us, or even to ourselves. Because we know, eventually, one day, some of those conditions will not be available to us. And we'll have to die. I was talking to my friend Tenzin Kacho, who is the latest podcast. If you haven't listened to any of my podcasts, hers is really interesting. And um, we were talking yesterday, and I told her that in the two weeks her podcast has been on iTunes, there's been 1,054 downloads of her talk. And she was just amazed. Why would so many people be interested in what she had to say? You know, But she had some interesting things to say. And then we continued to talk, and she said, she's having a birthday. I just had one. She's got one coming up in a month or so. We're just a year apart. She said, you know, Kusala, I was thinking about my age. And I realized that today is the best day I'm ever going to have. Because it's only going to get worse. <laughs> you know, when you're 20, it's only going to get better. But she's going to be 58. So in her case, today's the day. And then she thought about all the different conditions. She's still practicing training at the UCLA Medical Center in Santa Monica. She graduates uh, in May. And then she uh, gets a certificate and will be able to apply for a job as a hospital chaplain, which would be a great job for a nun to have. She could support herself. She could get health care and have a little bit of money, but more importantly, the robes would be visible in an institution and she could practice the bodhisattva ideal of compassion and kindness to all she comes in contact with. But I thought to myself, yeah, our conditions are in a constant state of flux. They are impermanent. They don't get better after a certain point. They only get worse. Our boundaries only increase. We go from single vision to bifocal to trifocal. Man. And our little head is jerking up and down, just trying to, you know, decipher the world around us. Our hearing sometimes goes, and people have to talk a little louder to us, you know? Sometimes we can't eat what we like to eat, or drink what we like to drink. Sometimes it's hard to sleep. The body keeps waking us up, saying, do this, do that, I can't get comfortable. Sometimes you just can't get comfortable after a certain age. You know? Is that a problem? Well, it doesn't have to be. It seems to be just the reality of being a human being. Do we have to suffer through that? Only if we want things to be different. But if we understand those three aspects of Buddhist wisdom, we can come to a place of acceptance with the way things are. 
we can have the present moment experience of our life be just the way it's supposed to be. It may not look as full to some, and it may look more full to others. But I suppose the point is, if we're mindful of everything we do, everything we say, and everything we think, our past and future will fall away into the perfection of this present moment. Well, that's it. That was my talk on mindfulness meditation at True Yoga in Thousand Oaks, California. Hope you found it useful. Hope you found it interesting. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info, K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. And you can reach me by email at kusala, K-U-S-A-L-A, at urbandharma.org. Always enjoy hearing from you. Uh, and I'll get back to you just as soon as I can when I get those emails. Uh, so, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>